your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to read just verses 1 and 2 for the moment. The Apostle Peter has been addressing people in their various roles within their society, and he turns at this particular point to the Christian wives. This is what he says, as he's already spoken to citizens and to servants. He says, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Let's seek his face one more time for his blessing. Our Father, we have sung wonderful, familiar hymns, which are scriptural in their content, and we have expressed our desire for your presence and help. We wait for you. We wait upon your word that you may nourish our souls and make us to be to the praise of the glory of your grace. We thank you again for all that you have done for us in bringing us the word of God and giving us a savior, Jesus Christ, and giving us your Holy Spirit. Continue to pour out your grace upon us and make our lives to redound to your glory and honor. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Just a couple of weeks ago, just three weeks ago, I preached in the evening about Christ's aim for his church. And in that sermon from Ephesians chapter 5, I spoke about the roles of men and women, which reflect the relationship between the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. And I mentioned at that time that I would deal with those roles further. Uh, so here we are. In 1 Peter chapter 3, it is a very strategic passage. It is instructive for married women. You read the words with me, and as I read them earlier, you see uh, just how much Peter concentrates upon Christian women who are married. But I want to make the point that it is, it is obviously instructive for Christian women, but it is instructive for every person here. Sometimes you read a passage like this and you say, okay, he's going to preach to women, to married women in particular. But I want to assert that there is spiritual food and application for everyone, for Christian women, for Christian women married to unconverted men. That is the dominant uh, emphasis of the passage. But there are lessons here for women who are married to Christian men. There are lessons here for women who are not married. I, I see a lot of younger girls here. Uh, what kind of a wife will you be? What, what do you hope the Lord Jesus will do in your life to make you the kind of women here who is described in this passage? And then there are men. What do we pray for our wives that they will be? 
for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ? What do we pray for our, our daughters? What do we pray God will provide for our sons? Why? The kind of wives. How will, how will sons know? What kind of a woman should I be looking for if God is going to give me a married partner? Well, this verse, these verses have a tremendous amount to say to every one of us. And if you think about yourself in this manner, I think you will find that the word of God has much to say to every single one of us. So this morning, we're going to be considering uh, this passage, especially verses 1 and 2. And we're going to start with Peter's concern for wives. Peter has a specific concern, very focused, which he is going to be uh, emphasizing, explaining, amplifying, supporting, not only in verses 1 and 2, but all the way down through verse 6. We won't get there today, but I hope God willing to have the opportunity to get through all of these verses sooner or later with you, if God gives us opportunity. So the first thing is Peter's fundamental concern for wives. Notice what it says. It's not, not difficult to figure out. Uh, in the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands. That's Peter's focused concern that Christian women will be submissive to their own husbands. Now, I want you to understand how Peter connects this Christian conduct to various relationships in his concern for the glory of God. That's Peter's, that's Peter's real aim. Peter wants that Christian women would conduct themselves in such a manner that God would be glorified. In our day, of course, the subject of submission has a bad name. Women are taught today to look out after themselves, to make their own way, not to be dependent upon anyone, uh, but they are to take their, their place. And, and actually, the roles are reversed now. Society wants men to be subdued and women to be Brought to the brought to the top, right? That's that's what it is. But but remember what Peter is doing here. He's giving God's will, God's instructions. This is what Jesus died for. The whole letter starts with the with the centrality of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is simply an application of our concern for the glory of Christ as well. Christian wives, and those who pray for them and love them. And um, Peter actually goes back, and this is why I read verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2 earlier. Notice, notice what Peter is doing here. Just a, just a moment to get that to get context uh, here. He says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. You're, you're on the battle lines. All Christians are. Christian women are on the battle lines. And there are fleshly lusts. There are appetites in us which are not yet perfectly subdued. And they wage war against our souls. And we need to do battle. 
And the great concern is we keep our behavior. Now here, here we have a, a translation issue, right? Because the, a lot of the word that comes forward a number of times is conversation, right? And conversation does not mean having a chit-chat with your best friend on the phone or sending text messages to your friend. It's not about things you say. It's a lifestyle word. That word for in the King James for uh, behavior is a lifestyle word. It's speaking about, yes, your, your speech is one of those things, but it's primarily about your conduct. So when you read the word conversation in the King James, think conduct, not just what I say. As a matter of fact, what we'll, what we'll see from uh, verses 1 and 2, is that, is that, what's it is important not only what you say, but what you do not say. So keep your behavior, your conversation, excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God. On the day of visitation, God is a day, he says, a day when his grace prevails, which will bring forth from some who formerly have regarded you as evildoers to give thanks to God for your sustained godly conduct. That's what, that's what Peter's all about. And so he applies this to citizens. Um, again, he has some... Um, he has told them in verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. He's thinking about your role as a citizen in the country where you are. And then a little further down, he speaks up to servants. Uh, very interesting word here. Uh, it, it, it has to, it's a word that would be, uh, would be applied to or speak of house servants. It would include slaves. But it would also include those people who were employed by the head of the household. They were servants. So it's a broad, a broad term, servants. Be submissive to your masters in all respect. There comes that word to the surface, submissive, right? And so he tells them, your role as an employee, you see, is intended to glorify God in the day of visitation. Your role as citizens, your role as servants, and that's why he comes down to chapter 3, verse 1 with, in the same way. Just as in citizens, members of society, you're aiming to have your conduct excellent among the Gentiles to glorify God. <clears throat> Just as in servants, your conduct is to be such a conduct as will glorify God. And now, in the same way you want, the question is almost, well, Paul, know what you said to citizens, and I'm a citizen, and I know what you said to servants, and I'm a servant, all of us serve somebody, we all have, a, we all have bosses, I like, to, I like to emphasize that from time to time, because people think that nobody else has quite the difficulty that they have in relating to their master, their boss, but uh, we all at some point have someone we have to submit to, and ultimately, of course, it's our Savior. In the same way, you wives. Okay, Peter is concerned now especially about the wives in verses 1 to 6. He'll come to husbands later. 
But here's his fundamental concern for Christian wives. It's that they be submissive to their husbands. The issue, again, I, I, the issue is the glory of God. The issue is not my self-fulfillment. The issue is not my self-promotion. My, the issue is not that I will be praised in the sight of men. The issue is that God will be glorified. What a difference that will make. There was a young boy one time who was being taught to be polite, thankful. And he was brought to someone's home to share a meal with them. The host and his father told him to say thank you to the host. And he wouldn't do it. The father talked to him several times. And the boy had to be disciplined a number of times because he wouldn't do it. And this happened a couple of times. And finally one day, without the father saying anything, the boy said, thank you. And I remember the look on his face. It was my son when he said, I did it. I did it. I did it. He was excited because the lesson had finally sunk in. Christian women should have the same kind of excitement about their role because it's for the Lord Jesus Christ and it's by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when she sees the issues and she does it, she can say, I, by the grace of God, I did it and I have glorified God in society, in my home. So this is the, this is the point. Wives, Christian wives are to glorify God. Peter says in the submission to their husbands. Um, and in order to make Peter's, uh, Peter's directions clear, he's God's spokesman, he's God's word, of course. Uh, I, I want to describe what Peter is talking about negatively and positively. It's a good way to think about the word of God. What does, what does Peter not mean? When Peter tells wives to be submissive to their husbands, he is not speaking about agreement. He's not saying, Christian wife, you have to agree with everything your husband says, whether he's converted or unconverted. It's not about agreement. A Christian woman, well, number one, should not sin against God in order to submit to her husband. And there, there are many things that uh, a Christian woman, particularly married to an unconverted man, will be tempted to do because of her husband's authority. But the Bible is certainly clear that she should not sin. But there are many things that uh, a husband may wish his wife to do which are not sinful, but which she does not agree with. She may not agree with him. It may be where to shop. It may be things to buy which are not sinful, but which in her judgment they should not be buying. But she is called to submit, not necessarily to agree. See? In fact, I would argue as I've heard uh, preached myself in former years, that submission, in one sense, when you agree with someone, your husband says, okay, honey, uh, I know you have uh, 
you haven't been to the beauty parlor for a while, go to the beauty parlor, and that's what she wants. So she goes and she's I'm submitting to my husband. Yeah, but it's not quite the same when your husband is asking you to do what you wish to do. That that is submission, but it's not the same kind, you see. It's when you disagree with your husband that submission is more of obedience. It's the principle of obedience. Because when you agree with your husband and he tells you to do something, you do it and you're happy to do it. Uh, you know, there's a mixed motive there, isn't there? But when he tells you to do something, not sinful, that you would not rather do, for example, he might ask you to take his mother shopping. And that might not be a pleasant task. But if he asks you to do it, you can submit uh, and be happy doing so, even though you don't agree with him or the duty isn't pleasant. Agreement is not essential to submission. To submit, what does it mean then to submit? If submission is not agreement, what is submission? Submission is when you uh, use your, your mind, your heart, and your will to accomplish the purpose of another. That's submission. Your husband says, take my cranky mother shopping. And what you do is you don't avoid it. You don't resist it. You use your mind. Okay, I have to take mom, mom-in-law. I have to take mom shopping. So I bend my mind on this. This is my task. And I want to do it well. I want to do it to the glory of God. So I bend my mind. I think about it. And I think about it not in a resentful way but in order to do what I have been told to do. And then you get to your heart. Real submission, real obedience comes from the heart. That's why I was delighted when my little son said, I've done it. And I see the smile on his face. That's what I want, see. I want submission. I want obedience that is heart felt obedience and that's what you want to do now this may seem like i'm asking you to make uh, bricks without straw not not the case a christian in pursuit of the glory of god may very cheerfully do what is otherwise uh, a pill to, to use that metaphor right an undesirable task she may in her heart bring herself to love Obedience to God. That's where the, the matter actually rests, doesn't it? So it's to use your mind, to get your heart engaged in the right direction, and then to use your will, to bend your will to do the thing that you are being asked to do. That's what submission is. Submission is of that nature, whether you're a citizen, and your government may tell you to do certain things. The government may tell you on your tax return to list your use tax, to list things that have been bought for which taxes have not yet been collected. You might not agree with it. But that's what you're being told to do by your government, you say. And so you bend your mind. You go back to your Amazon Prime and you look up all the things you have bought in Amazon and you 
see all the taxes that were paid and what were the taxes were not paid. And you put them out there. You bend your mind, your heart, your will to accomplish the purposes of another. To do it cheerfully. Submission should be willing, not unwilling, so that the will ought to be engaged. Now, I want to give you an example of this, um, a rather odd example, and it emphasizes this matter of agreement. Look, please, at Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. I'm going to read, starting in verse 24. So, speaking of Jesus and his disciples, particularly Peter, when they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? Now, they were Jews who resisted the two drachma tax. They didn't think it was fair. They wouldn't pay it. And so the tax collectors asked Peter, what about your master now? Are we going to get trouble with Jesus? Is he, when we come to collect, going to pay the tax? Or is he going to give us an argument? Is he going to stiff arm us? And Peter said, yes, he does pay it. Peter knew. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? When Peter said, from strangers, Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. You know what Jesus is doing here? Jesus is disagreeing with the two drachma tax. He's saying it's not fair. It's not right. It's not according to civil equity. He doesn't agree. But what's next? However, so that we do not offend them. Jesus does something very strange. Tells Peter, to go, tells Peter to go fishing. Peter, Peter's a fisherman. Go fishing. The first fish you catch, take it. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and for me. Now, Jesus resolves the problem miraculously. Jesus often will not tell us to go fishing and find a resolution for what we don't want to do. But the point is that Jesus doesn't say, just because I don't agree, I won't do it. No, there are reasons why we ought to do things which we don't agree with. And Jesus is an example to us. Can we follow? Can we follow Jesus? Can we follow in his steps and say, well, I don't agree, but I don't want to give offense. Eh? And then remember back in uh, 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, how, how Peter Maybe maybe he even remembers this incident, how he makes this the case. They speak of you as evildoers, but they may on account of your good deeds as they observe them. Glorify God in the day of visitation. So they will thank God for something that you do that you didn't want to do, that you didn't agree to do, but you did it. You did it out of principled obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his will set out in Scripture. Well, Peter identifies these women. This is, this is, the, this is his great concern. Peter's great concern is submission. Interesting enough, you read the text carefully, he makes it broader than women with unconverted husbands. 
You see, he says, in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that, and here's my New American Standard, so that even if they are disobedient to the word, they may be one. So, this applies to husbands across the board. Wives, Christian wives of husbands, whether they're converted or unconverted. So, the unconverted husbands are a, uh, a difficult case. What do we do? Okay, I can understand my husband's a Christian, and I can talk to him, and I can tell him why I don't like what he's asking me to do. I still have to submit to him sooner or later. I still have to submit to him, even if he's a Christian, and even if I disagree with him, um, I have the right and the privilege to tell him why I disagree. But sooner or later, that, that word, that S-word submission has to come into play, even with Christian husbands, you say. So, um, that's, that's the, the issue. Um, Peter, Peter's telling Christian wives, be submissive to your own husbands. Isn't it, isn't it interesting how Peter does this? He says, your own husbands. Remember back in Ephesians 5, that's what Paul said. Be submissive to your own husbands. He says it again in Colossians 2.18. And there are more places, just naming a few, where this issue, he says, your husband, not somebody else's husband, not some other Christian woman who agrees with you. No, the duty of submission is to your own husband. So, again, Peter lays this duty on all Christian women. And then there is this especially difficult, aggravated case. And some woman says to, to Peter, as it were, maybe she, she writes him a, a text message if she has a cell phone today. She would probably write a text message that says, but Peter, my husband is not a Christian. And actually, not only is he not a Christian, he doesn't have much common grace because he's actually disobedient to the word, which grieves me. How shall I fulfill my duty to such a husband to the glory of God? Well, Peter, Peter says, look, in the same way, as you do as a citizen, as you do as an employee, be submissive to your own husband, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the behavior, that lifestyle word, conversation. You see, uh, you, you can get a better grasp on that word conversation because uh, how do you win him without a word by your conversation if conversation is chit-chat? Well, it doesn't work, right? That, that conversation word is the lifestyle word. It has to do with your manner of life, the way you behave yourself. Be, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word. So here is the difficult case. A couple of things that we want to we note at this point. Um, first of all, Peter is not justifying a Christian woman marrying an unconverted man. That's not what Peter's doing here. He's speaking to women who are already married to unconverted husbands. And the Bible teaches that a woman who is a Christian should not contract a marriage to a person who is not a Christian. The Bible is plain. Uh, 2 Corinthians 6.14 1 Corinthians 7.39, uh, 6.14, Paul says, Do not be bound with unbelievers. Uh, 
1 Corinthians 7.39 says, Christian widows can marry whoever they wish only in the Lord. So, Christian women should not be contracting marriage with unconverted men. That's the first thing we want to remember. This is a case where a woman probably was unconverted herself, and she married this man, and then she was converted. And now here she is. She's married to an unconverted man, not illegitimately, but legitimately. So that's the first thing. Peter's not justifying Christian women marrying unconverted men. Secondly, Peter is calling all Christian women to submit to their husbands, whether they are Christians or not. Christians or not. With common grace, with religious background or not. Doesn't matter. The even if means that in both cases, the woman should pursue the same conduct. If her husband's a Christian, well, she pursues the conduct of submission, godly submission. If her husband is not a Christian, but he's a nice guy, she should still pursue submission. If he is disobedient to the word, he doesn't believe the word, he doesn't follow the word. He doesn't concern himself with the word of God, with the commands of God. He's disobedient to the word. She has to pursue the same conduct. And she must do this because it is a present tense command. Be submissive to your husband's present tense. She must not do this once in a while. She must not do it merely occasionally. She should do it habitually. That's, that's what Peter's saying. In the case that Peter envisions the man is unconverted, and he has the native disposition of the unconverted, he doesn't obey the word of God. So this is Paul's concern, Peter's concern, I, pardon me, Peter's concern for wives is submission to their own husbands. Secondly, consider the evangelistic value that Peter describes. There is an evangelistic value. Women are not to use the carnal tactic of wearing their husbands out by using their mouth as an offensive weapon, trying to overcome him with his with her words. Now it's interesting, uh, women have different temperaments, just like men have different temperaments and different ways, but this is a, this will be a temptation for a Christian woman married to an unconverted man. And that is to use her mouth in such a way as to wear him down and bring him into line with her will. Okay, I've already made the qualification. She shouldn't sin. She has the right to say, I can't do as much as I love you, honey, and much as I would love, love to obey you. Uh, I can't sin against God. What you're asking me to do is sinful, and here's where the Bible says so I can't do it. That's right. That's permissible. It is correct. But Peter says for the woman in this situation, this has an evangelistic uh, effect. The man's unconverted. Christianity is was, just as it is today, unpopular. And uh, so that's the effect upon him. That's the culture in which he lives. He's disobedient to the word in an unfriendly way. That's what, uh, that's what Peter is speaking about. 
So, with that expressed animosity in mind, Peter's envisioning the antagonistic non-Christian husband, he tells the woman that she should control her words. She's not to aim to beat him down with her words. As a matter of fact, what Peter says, the value of this kind of conduct is that he may be one, look at it, without a word. Well, that's, that is uh, not the way modern evangelicals would write the verse, is it? Without a word. How does she win her husband without a word? What well, Peter tells her. This is the value of her submission. Her purpose is to win him. She has other purposes. She wants to keep a good conscience. She wants to please the Lord so that she may say to her Lord, I did it. I did it for you. I did it by your grace. I did it by your strength. I did it. And those are purposes she has. But the purpose that Peter says here is that he may be one without a word. He may be one without a word. As he, they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, her purpose is to win him the duty of submission is the aim, the means by which she gains his conscience and his good will. Now, Peter is not guaranteeing a Christian woman that if she does everything he says, her husband will be converted. Some husbands may never be converted by this means. But it is the best means to maintain a good relationship, a good well relationship, and to gain his, con his conscience that his wife is indeed what she says she is, a godly woman. When Paul's talking to Titus, Titus chapter 2, and we won't turn there for time's sake, but this is one of the points that Peter makes, that godly Christian conduct shuts the mouth of people who are antagonistic to the gospel. See that? You saw that in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, right? So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good conduct, your lifestyle, they may on account of your good conduct glorify God in the day of visitation. Again, Peter's not guaranteeing such women, that their husbands will be converted. But they will usually come to, ex to, con to respect their wives and to appreciate the impact of Christianity in their lives. Imagine that Christian husband, I'm sorry, that non-Christian husband, his wife has been converted. And now, whereas before, if he said, make sure dinner's, dinner's hot on the table at 6 o'clock, she said, well, you know, 6.15 is fine, 6.30 is fine, 7 o'clock is fine. I'll do it when I feel good and ready to do it. Imagine when he goes and talks to his unconverted neighbor friend. You know, when I first married this woman, she gave me all kinds of trouble, all kinds of resistance. But now, she is prompt, 
She is gracious. I know there are some things I've asked her to do, some things which grate her the wrong way, and she still smiles, kisses me, and does it cheerfully. This Christianity stuff makes a big difference. I see it in my wife, you see. That's usually what happens. And submission is part of the means to this end. This is its value in the situation. It secures goodwill, and it is a means towards salvation. So, you see Peter's concern for, his, for the wives, the Christian wives, submission to their own husbands, and the evangelistic value that Peter describes. He tells them, this is the best way, the best path. This is God's way toward the conversion of your husbands. The last thing I want to point out in our text is the strategy, the practical conduct, the best means that Peter describes to these women. There is a strategic, practical conduct designed to accomplish your goal as a Christian woman negatively. First of all, negatively, I've already emphasized it, without a word, without a word, so that they may be one without a word. It's not how many words she speaks that changes his heart. It's not her constant arguments that wins his heart. Peter says her aim is that her quietness would be the means God uses to soften his heart. It doesn't mean that she should not speak at all about spiritual things. Many unconverted husbands would want to hear. They would say, honey, look, something, something's happened. I don't get it. Even though I'm just as mean, inconsiderate as I have always been, you are loving and obedient. And you don't try to talk me down. Says so I'm, I'm beginning to wonder about this Christianity stuff. You see, many husbands will want to hear. And here Peter is, uh, again, he's addressing a specific situation. He's resistant. He may not ask to be told about your Christianity at all. So negatively, the strategy is not with words. Not with words. Seems counterintuitive. You say, well, if I keep my mouth shut, how will he ever hear? But Peter says, this is the way. This is what God says. Positively. Now, instead of witnessing with a volume of words, what does she do? It's her behavior, that lifestyle word, that conversation word, by her behavior. She now witnesses by her behavior, by the behavior of their wives, first one, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Again, I've said enough times, behavior, conversation in the King James is her manner of life. Given her proper conduct, her husband will observe what cannot help being noticed? Because he's going to see the way she used to be. Now the way she is. He's going to look around the neighborhood and he's going to see other women who don't behave this way at all. And the contrast between her and unconverted people in her family, in her neighborhood, 
is going to be very stark. It's, it's, that, it's that principle that Jesus enunciated, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. A, wor- a woman who follows this prescription will be noticed. And specifically, Peter makes details about her behavior, not a word, negatively, positively, specifically, he observes your chaste and respectful behavior. Here are the two things on the positive side. She has chaste conduct. Now this has a wide variety of meanings. This particular word, chaste, has um, a, a wide variety of meanings. Sexually, it refers to purity. Now, let's face it. In a world like ours today, a woman who is sexually pure, devoted only to her husband, is going to be a striking thing. It's going to win his conscience in a very powerful way so that the woman is not always looking to dress herself up and attract the eyes of men by the shortness of her skirt, the tightness of her clothing. She's going to be chaste in that sense. But it's not just that. It's just not that. It's, it has to do really with the, the uh, way that she fulfills her responsibilities as a Christian woman. And that comes out both in the word chaste, but also in the word next word, her uh respectful behavior. Now, I don't remember. I did look in my King James, but I forget what it, what word is being used there. But it's a word that has to do with the discharge of an office. She has a function. Okay, she has to run the household. She has to do his bidding. And what she does is she's faithful in it. She accomplishes the things that she ought to accomplish. She is careful fulfill her husband's wants and she is respectful and that's a that's an interesting term as well that respectful word is a uh, has to do with uh, in fear that's literally what the Greek says her in fear conduct and it's not that she's not cringing it's not that she's frightened by him because later on you'll notice in the text that it says, about Sarah in verse 6 at the end, without being frightened by any fear, she's not afraid of him. She's submissive to him. She has nothing to, to be afraid of. But what she does fear is God. Again, not a cringing fear of a slave, but that fear of reverence that says, I want to please my God. The fear of God is the soul of godliness. The fear and reverence for God and what he says is the heart and soul of the Christian woman. She wants to do what's right in God's sight. Well, that's what Peter says. That's Peter's directions, at least the beginning of it, because we still have more verses, but we won't get to them today. Uh, This is what Peter says to Christian women. He's made his concern known to them, submission to their husbands, the aggravated case of a husband who's unconverted and disobedient to the word, and she is to 
came to win him by her godly conduct, not by volume of words, but by her godly conduct. And in the mind of God, in our minds, godly conduct should be like the twisting of the arm behind the back. It has great power and influence. So, how does all of this apply? Well, the application is obvious to wives with unconverted husbands. It speaks to the importance of a gracious modesty concerning the things of God, a diligent carefulness to be a blameless wife. And if you happen to be married to an unconverted person, then you want to beware of fostering enmity. It's possible, you see, to so treat that unconverted person, as to provoke all of the, that animosity. And that's what you don't want to do. Your duty is not to foster enmity, but in much, as much as lies in you, to use a different text, uh, to be at peace with your husband. That's the aim. That's the aim. And that's, the, that's the plan. Secondly, this shows the tremendous difference between Christian conduct and feminism. Fem feminism, would you have pursue your own will and your own agenda and your own satisfaction separate from the man with whom you live. But that is unbiblical, unbiblical. That's not a woman's role according to the mind of God. When all is well, you submit. And in the worst case, you submit. You trust in God for grace. And you seek to do what he says. You're not a Christian feminist. You are a Christian woman. One other, there are lots of applications, but this passage shows us in the third place the folly of thinking that how much we can use our tongues is the real measure of our religion. The Bible teaches that our volume of words are not an indication of our religion. Some people think that we can talk much. If we can talk much, if we can express ourselves with words, we must be very religious. The, the Bible doesn't really take that attitude. Uh, the Bible tells us that the control of that member in our mouths, which is a dangerous member, the Bible tells us that control of our tongues is a far better indication of our religion. You remember James 1.26? If any man thinks himself to be religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his mouth, that man's religion is worthless. That's what God says. He says, it's not the volume of our words that shows our religion. It's the self-control of our tongue that shows what we really are. Well, one last thing. Perhaps you're here and you're unconverted. Let me ask you a question. What are you going to do with the testimony of godly 
Christian women. You know, it doesn't grow on trees. It doesn't grow, grow on Adamic soil. Christian women aren't godly by nature. It's the grace of God. And my question is, if you're an unconverted person, what are you going to do with Christian women like that? You know Christian women like that? Who are godly? Who are submissive to their husbands? Who do this out of principle for the glory of God? What are you going to do with those people? That's grace. That's the grace which Jesus Christ implants in the soul. Do you see it? Do you see it? You ought to acknowledge that this is the grace of God. And this is the grace of God that can change your soul. And make you from a person absorbed with yourself to be a person absorbed with the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And I would urge you to consider the claims of the gospel upon your life that you may know his, his grace, which to know is life eternal. Let's pray. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you with thanksgiving in our hearts for the wonderful word of God. The entrance, Lord, of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. And we would simply rest in the truths of your word. We pray for grace. We pray for grace for our women, our sisters in Christ, that you will give them help with the many difficulties that they face, that they would be able to rejoice in your grace that helps them to walk according to your holy word. Give them much of your spirit. Forgive their sins. Forgive us all our sins. And grant, Lord, that we may live to the praise of the glory of your grace. Work in the hearts of any of those here who have not yet tasted the grace of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of their sins and the transformation of their lives. Glorify yourself by extending your grace. We ask in your own blessed name. Amen. Amen. Amen.